Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. We have an extra special guest today, uh, my friend and brother, Dr. Ricky Jones, who is professor and chair of the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville, and who is a political scientist, black studies scholar, um, author of many books, including What's Wrong with Obama Mania, Black America, Black Leadership, and the Death of Political Imagination. Uh, Dr. Jones, welcome to Race and Democracy. Thanks, man. It's always good to hang out with you, brother. I mean, always good to hang out with you. I've got to admit, you know, Ricky was one of the prescient scholars and people about um, the contradictions of Barack Obama in the 2007-2008 period, including both with this book, What's Wrong with Obama Mania, but in his presentations um, you know, radio interviews, in um, public lectures, where it's not that he castigated Barack Obama, but he was very, very uh, uh, critically conscious of what kind of contradictions and limits a black president might have because of structures of neoliberalism that went beyond Barack Obama and that went beyond sort of the moral hopes and moral imagination and dreams of black people. So right. I want to say that from the outset. Oh, well, that's nice of you, man. And I love you too much. I love you too much to tell you I told you so. But yeah, <laughs> but there were structural analyses there. But also, for me, it was a look at what type of brother Barack was and is. And, you know, we were in that moment, 2007, 2008, where, you know, there, there, was, a, there was almost worship of, of Barack. And there is a difference, and I have to say this again, I've been saying it, you know, for the last 10, 11 years, there's a difference between Barack Obama and Obama mania. You know, I, I remember when this book first came out and we were together. I'll never forget it. We were in Birmingham together and a woman came up during the book signing and she picked the book up and says to me, what's wrong with Barack, what's wrong with Obama mania? Huh? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, well, I can tell you what's wrong with Obama mania. And I was like, what's that? And she said, absolutely nothing. It threw the book down. <laughs> you know, so you, you couldn't have any reasonable conversation with people on that. But if you looked at if you looked at the development of Barack, you know, from Puna Howe, you know, to Occidental, to Columbia, to Harvard and, and early in his political career, you knew he was a hardworking, really, really smart um, politician. But he wasn't a savior. I don't think that's something that he aspired to be. He's a pragmatist. He wants to see if something is workable. And, um, you know, I'm really interested right now looking at Ilhan Omar who is what we thought Barack would be. You know, they would say, Barack, you're a Muslim. No, I'm not a Muslim. She actually is. I mean, Barack, you're a radical. Omar actually is. So that's, that's, that's the next thing that I'm really, really interested in seeing how it develops. And that's what I want to talk to you about. I want to talk to you about 2019, 2020 uh, reparations, the Democratic uh, presidential primaries, these candidates, um, certainly the way in which um, Ilhan and AOC, Alexandria Ocasio, um, has really... Um, um, transformed a debate talking about Green New Deal, but also when we think about issues of Black Lives Matter, how they've transformed uh, democratic discourse. The, the, the gubernatorial runs by Stacey Abrams in Georgia, Andrew Gillum 
in Florida in defeat how they've transformed. And certainly in Stacey Abrams' case, an election that was pretty much stolen um, by, by, by um, the, the Secretary Brian of Kemp. State and, and Brian Kemp, the now governor. Um, and really the shadow of Barack Hussein Obama. I want to talk about that as well, because um, I've had a chance to meet Michelle Obama. Um, she's been on the book tour, Becoming. I've, been, I've, I've read that. I think Michelle Obama is fabulous. Valerie Jarrett has a memoir, Finding My Voice. But Barack Obama um, has been very vocal of late, saying he doesn't want the Democratic primary process to be a, a, a case of self-inflicted wounds on the party, where, um, like he often says, uh, the enemy um, perfect, the, the quest for perfect uh, should never be the enemy of the good, right? And that, that the, these folks who are on the progressive side of the Democratic uh, primary um, debates when we're thinking about Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, um, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, just the, these folks, Elon, um, um, will, will sort of uh, he said uh, a, a circular fire squad, a semicircular yeah. fire squad. And, and we just sort of um, eat each other or cannibalize each other's ideas and then lose in the 2020 against Trump. So I want to talk about all of that. And where are we at right now? And how long do we have today? You know, reparations, too. The fact that I think it's extraordinary that people are talking about saying they either support reparations or support the bill by John Conyers, H.R. 40, to to study reparations congressionally let's see where do we start Let, let's start with ideas like reparations let's start with realities like voter suppression all of these things when you look at what went on with, with Stacey Abrams but these are older ideas that are now being popularized because of one public debate but also public conflict you know Georgia's my home state I'm an Atlanta native. Stacey Abrams went to Spelman, of course. I, I graduated from, well, not of course, but I, I'm a Morehouse graduate. And she's an LBJ master's degree graduate, too. I, 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 <laughs> did, I didn't know she went to school at, at, at UT. That's, that, that's cool. Um, but what we saw in that race has been happening to black people since 1870, you know, since the passage of the 15th Amendment that they gave black men in a de jure way the right to vote. We've always had voter suppression going on in black communities, and it is still going on. So what was not interesting, which was what was understandable, because black people are suffering so much and not able to pay attention to a lot of these things in the ways uh, that scholars often do. They just saw a stark example of a person in the person of, of Brian Kemp who is running an office where his office is literally counting the votes in an election of which he is a part of and he is making decisions on that vote tally and how things are administered. I mean, it was it was stark. It was just blatant. So people had to talk about it. But that was already there. Ideas about reparations. When you talk about studying, we all need to study more. Right. I think how do we take these issues that ev that that scholars like you and, and, and I are looking at as a part of our life worlds? But transfer those, make those digestible for everyday people. And I think the problem that we quite often have in the academy, we get so full of ourselves with convoluted language and ego stroking that, you know, we will write stuff and kick speeches out that like 10 other people can even understand, let alone be interested in. But how can we translate that 
where everyday people are interested in it and they can digest it and try to change and their And I think world. that's happened with and, reparations. And that's what's starting to happen, yeah. right? So reparations, and I, I want to be quick so we can move to other, other points. The very elementary engagement of reparations is this idea that, you know, black people are going to be given checks. You know, you're going to get your reparations. Like it's some episode of the Dave Chappelle show. But, there, you know, there's so many different ways to approach this if you talk about reparations. Like for me, one idea, just one, not certainly not the totality of things that can happen. If education is the bedrock of, you know, achievement of you moving to a different status in our society. What if what if for 75 years? For 75 years, if you can prove that you you got some black in you, you can go to college for free. What if we do that? That To me, that's a form of reparations. That's not just giving somebody a check, but it's giving them some opportunity, and we have a whole lot more people claiming that they're black, I'm sure. You know, rowing crew and playing lacrosse and all kinds of things <laughs> at Harvard, Yale, Stanford, USC. So, so the, the, the reparations discourse is very interesting for me, especially away from just a specific check but trying to transform inequality, especially economic inequality, trying to transform segregated spaces to not just racially integrated spaces, but to healthy spaces. Uh, we, we see gentrification in Washington, D.C. We see gentrification in downtown Brooklyn, New York, where you bring white wealth and, and, and white bodies into a space. But the black people who have been previously in this segregated space when it was under-resourced are pushed out. Right. So they don't get to enjoy... The, the spoils of sort of neoliberalism in that sense. So w- when I think about reparations and, and the presidential um, uh, election forthcoming in 2020, I think about this idea of citizenship and even this idea of 1619 to 2019, 400 years in terms of racial slavery in North America. Um, citizenship, how, how can we uh, talk about black citizenship um, and inject that into this contemporary debate over whether you're talking about mass incarceration or employment or health care or reparations. I definitely see with some of the newer members of Congress, like Ayanna Presley, these are women, AOC, Elon, Muslim, Latina, black. They're really pushing this idea of, of, of both black and sort of third world multiracial, multicultural citizenship. Right. And, and, you know, I, I think what is what is encouraging about them, what is beautiful about them, and this is where I will take issue with uh, President Obama, those sisters are swinging for the fences. I mean, they are swinging for the fences. They have no limits on their sociopolitical imaginations. They're not willing to step in a system that they know was not designed for them and rules that were constructed to not only not benefit them, but to tax them and follow those rules and continue to reify that system. So their political approach is different. You know, they are trying to disrupt that system in any way that they can because they understand that system only benefits a few. That moves us from questions, not just questions of citizenship, but also to questions of humanity, right? So when you talk about reparations, Certainly something needs to be repaired when you look at black communities from L.A. to Atlanta to New York. The question becomes, why is this repair needed? Right. So is there something that has happened to black people in this country structurally that has broken their backs for hundreds of years or are they just individual bad actors? And when you really look at the numbers, Either something structural has been going on 
that has been very deliberate, very inhumane and very vicious or we're the worst people that God has ever put on the face of the earth. Now, I choose the first option. I think something structural has gone on. So when you talk about that repair, then how do you go about it? Do you play by the rules that have always been put in place by people who have not had your best interest at heart? Or do you try to change that game? So I don't necessarily think that progressive thinkers are lining themselves up in a circular firing squad and blowing each other out of the water. I think they're doing what we do in the academy. We're open to debate. You bring your ideas out there. You put them out there in the marketplace of ideas and you open them up for torture. Everybody's going back and forth, right? And I think that can make us stronger if it's done properly. And now I want you to talk about those debates. I want you to talk about everything from immigration, right, to healthcare, right, to all these big, you know, Medicare for all, uh, reparations, ending mass incarceration, but really transforming the entire criminal justice system, which the BLM policy agenda, because so much of what I'm excited about the democratic debate is focused on is policy, because you're mm -hmm. my policy guru. You've always talked about this. You're a political scientist. Right. But that when we think about these freedom struggles, we're saying, how can we change these policies, whether it's money bail, whether we see the DOJ report about Ferguson and what happened in Ferguson. And I have that right here in my office. What's so exciting is these policy debates and transformations, but we need to get those policy debates. We need to win elections. And you always talked about this, winning elections statewide and locally and not just getting obsessed with the federal. You always right. talked about yeah. that. That that's under Obama, Democrats had more losses in an eight year period than than ever through the 20th century. Yep. And some of that's starting to be built up. We saw in the midterms is the midterm with the midterms results that we saw with Democrats getting the House of Representatives. Is that a progressive blue wave? What is it? Can that be? This was the biggest turnout since 1970 in a midterm election. And Democrats came out in even larger numbers than Republicans by millions of votes. Where do we go from here? Not just 2020 federal, but I mean granularly taking back state houses, local city councils, winning judgeships in places where um, judges are elected like Texas. Where do we go from here? See, now that's where you're digging into the weeds that are, I mean, very important weeds. When you talk about Republicans controlling uh, the majority of the governorships, controlling the majority of the state houses, you're seeing them be able to, at key times, control um, the federal house so they can deal with it, with redistrict, redistricting and reapportionment. They can handle all of these things. They can stack the courts. That's driving everything. I think to try to distill a very um, complex question that you ask, I think it's really important that we make policy personal. How can you translate? If you talk about health care, right? My oldest friend, Carrie uh, Norwood, who I grew up with in, in South, southwest Atlanta, has sickle cell. So he's had to deal with the healthcare system all his life. When he was born, doctors didn't think he'd live past 16. Thank God, you know, he, he'll hit 52 this year, but he deals with that healthcare system so he understands it. We need to talk to people and say, look, if you got a loved one, whether it's your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, you, close friend, cousin, or, 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 or child, and you're dealing with this, how does this impact you in this case, right? When you're talking about incarceration, look, black men, 4 or 5% of the population make up almost half the jail and prison population in this country. 
that's touching a whole lot of people. Mm-hmm. That's touching a whole lot of people. You talk about uh, um, law enforcement, how black people are dealing with agents of the state. And you know, Peniel, the case that always hits me is the case of Tamir Rice mm-hmm. in, in Cleveland. I mean, that, a 12-year-old child who is executed within seconds of the police arriving and then the city of Cleveland saying he was largely responsible for his own death. There is a racial element to that. As we see black men, women and children killed all over this country and usually quite often nobody pays a price for it. So the question for me is, are we really free if we're not able to impact those situations and turn that tide? Mm-hmm. Are we really in a country that, 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 that functions along lines of justice if those things are happening disproportionately to black people and other people of color? And what can we do to turn that? And so I don't think we can just be policy wonks because that's inaccessible to people. But we can certainly talk if we just talk about law enforcement. That might not resonate, but we can certainly talk to black parents. How can we keep your children safe? Right. We, we can't just talk about policy with health care, but we can talk to people about their family and friends. How can we keep these people alive? Those are very important things. I want to talk to you about black voters in the Democratic Party, black women in the Democratic oh, Party, here we go. <laughs> black men in the Democratic Party, right. and the fact that we have activists like Sean King who've really pushed people like not just Bernie Sanders, but those newly elected in Congress to diversify their chiefs of staff. Mm-hmm. We have the most diverse chiefs of staffs in the history right now of the U.S. Senate because of work that activists are doing, right. saying that you, you, you can't just take the votes of predominantly black women and black men, but black women are the single best Democratic voter on the planet Earth right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. right? Um, you can't just take their votes and not have, even if you're a white candidate, not have a staff that looks like the people who are voting for you. Right. Right. And so I want to ask you about that and the fact that it seems to me the level of black activism right now is just getting increasingly more sophisticated and more potent and effective in a way that, quite honestly, me as a student of politics and history have learned so much from seeing it at this granular level in ways that I hadn't thought about before as a historian and and an activist that I think is quite remarkable and is going to be very, very effective as we move forward. But when we think about the Democratic Party right now, the only two African-Americans running for president, um, well, there's three running for president uh, because uh, uh, Nina, who's the... um, State former state senator out of Ohio is also what Nina Turner is running for president. So it's Nina Turner. She's not been getting a lot of publicity. Kamala Harris, who has been getting a lot of publicity, senator out of California, and Cory Booker, senator out of New Jersey. So we have three. But what 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 do you say in terms of with a with a Democratic Party that needs black votes as much as they do? um, Should an African American be on the ticket? If an African-American is not on a ticket, what does the party owe black people? Because we know if the party is elected in 2020, black people are going to be a huge part. Just like we see Doug Jones, black women voted for Doug Jones in the special election in Alabama at a 98 percent clip, 98 percent. So what are we owed if if we do wake up January 20th, 2021, and there's not only a Democratic president, but a Democratic president who can pass laws, Senate, House of Representatives, what, what's the black agenda have to look like? Right. OK. There are a few things here, and these are important conversations. Like you talk about 
the, the Democratic turnout in the recent midterms. An argument can be made that the Republican Party at this juncture has overplayed its hand. I mean, when you see what's coming out of the White House, it is very difficult to argue that the ideas emanating from a person like Stephen Miller and others who have been in this White House, when when you talk about immigration and race, that these people are leaning toward preferring a white ethno state. It is difficult to get away from that reality now. But the question for me is not just about Donald Trump and the people in his orbit, but what does this say about America? Because you have a good percentage of people who are supporting him and they are supporting that agenda. They went out and voted for him in 2016. And in a reasonable world, there's no way this man will be reelected in 2020. But in America, as we know it, he just might. Now, moving beyond. So, so it's difficult to avoid what these people are. And that has motivated a lot of folk, I think, to say, wait a minute, we got to do something about this. So folk are going out and participating. Now, to the Democrats. This is a conversation that many of us have been pushing for for quite some time, because since 1960, black people have been the Democratic Party's most loyal constituency. Okay, so we don't just have to talk about race. We need to talk. Let's talk about pragmatic politics there. If we are the people who unfailingly vote in the 90th percentile for the Democratic Party and they're not getting that from others, then you doggone right something is owed to the black community. You doggone right the Democratic Party needs to talk about uh, a disproportionate incarceration. They need to talk about underemployment and unemployment among black people. They need to talk about educational failures where black communities are concerned. They need to talk about police brutality where black communities are concerned. They need to talk about higher rates of infant mortality and shorter lifespan. So from the cradle to the grave, we're being impacted by the world in which we live. And the Democratic Party needs to talk about that. I had a conversation a few years ago when Hillary Clinton lost to uh, uh, Donald Trump and a white sister says, you know, Dr. Jones, she was almost in tears. She was like, what happened? Why did women abandon Hillary? And I'm like, that's a bad question. Black women voted well over 90 percent for Hillary just as they do in most elections where the Democratic Party puts a, a candidate out there that we think is halfway decent. Over half of white women, 53, 54 percent, voted for Donald Trump. So the question is, why did white women abandon Hillary Clinton? And so I think, again, to, to not be too long about it, Democratic politicians every two, four, six years, they got the black community has to stop allowing them to treat us like shameful mistresses that they come visit at two o'clock in the morning. Right. They run into our black churches. During election season, get those black votes from black women and black men. And then once they get into office, they pay very little attention to what's going on with us. And Does that quite, include Obama? That's another conversation, but it can certainly be argued that. Obama. Well, you look, you ask black people, did Obama do what they thought he was going to do? Did he pay attention to the black community in ways that people thought he would? And I'm not saying that Barack Obama was a bad president. I'm simply saying that the ills the black community were, surf were suffering got very little attention paid to them. Now, people who are still, you know, beating that Obama drum 
will say, well, he couldn't do this and he couldn't do this. He couldn't do that. He couldn't do this. Well, OK, well, why are you holding Donald Trump so responsible for things that are going on? You know, you can't have that both ways. Right. You can't have that both ways. So surely there are black politicians that do not pay attention to black communities. Final question. 2020. Where do you see how do you see that race shaping up in 2020, especially when it comes to black issues um, and race in 2020? You know, this one isn't as clear to me as as it was in the past. Even even when you look at we we're not seeing black politicians who are nece- who necessarily sub- subscribe to black health and well-being. You know, there are some serious questions that need to be asked of 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 Sister Kamala Harris about her time as a prosecutor in, in, in California. You know, there are some questions that need to be asked of, of Brother Cory Booker, right? about his interaction with folk in, in, in Jersey. And certainly we have to ask questions of every white politician as well. So for me, and I'll close with this, if, if you got a white politician that is more down with the needs of the African-American community than a black politician who may be behaving like a Clarence Thomas, and I'm not saying that of Booker Harris because they are not, but those are, are the, the extremes, I'm going to take the white politician. Why wouldn't I? We'll end it there. Dr. Ricky Jones, who is professor and chair of the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville and the author of uh, several books, including uh, what's now a classic, What's Wrong with Obama Mania, Black America, Black Leadership and the Death of Political Imagination. Uh, Ricky, thank you for being here. Always good to hang with you, man. Much love to you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.